<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, and welcome to the Parting Shot Podcast, Newsweek's weekly dose of everything pop culture. I'm your host, H. Allen Scott. On this week's episode, I'll be chatting with Oscar-nominated actress Amanda Seyfried about her new Hulu series, The Dropout. She plays disgraced former health tech executive Elizabeth Holmes. I'll also chat with the host of Newsweek's The Royal Report podcast and ask why Americans are so obsessed with the royal family. All that and more on this week's The Parting Shot podcast. I hope you're ready for today's episode because it is a good one. No, you know what? No, it's a great one. That's what I'm going to say. But before we get into all of that, here's your roundup of culture stories from this week. In the magazine and on the website, check out my chat with Pamela Adlin, star and creator of Better Things. You can also listen to our full chat on last week's episode of the Parting Shot podcast. Are you watching Netflix's Inventing Anna? Because you really should. I binged all nine episodes over two days and I was hooked. Go to Newsweek.com for all kinds of coverage about the series and the real-life person it's based on, Anna Sorkin, a.k.a. Anna Delvey. Or is it Sorkin? We never know. We do know. It's weird. How you doing? Apparently not well, as it was reported on Newsweek.com that Wendy Williams' show is coming to an end. As a fan, I am bummed, but we'll still have Sherry Shepard, who filled in for Wendy during her medical absence from the show, and who will get her own self-titled talk show coming soon. Are you a reality TV fan of shows like The Bachelor, Celebrity Big Brother, or Drag Race? Well, we're recapping all of them at Newsweek.com. Okay, this one's my favorite. Do you remember Kevin's chili from The Office? You know the one. He's bringing in this big pot and he spills it all over himself in the beginning of the episode. That little moment from the show is such a fan favorite. And as we reported at Newsweek.com, one fan spotted an Easter egg about the chili In Peacock's Terms and Conditions page. That's right, the streamer's Terms and Conditions page. Listen to this clip. It's really funny. So my boyfriend obviously reads the Terms and Conditions. And I'm trying to figure out why the chili from the office, the recipe is on here (laughs) in the Terms and Conditions with the instructions. Why, Why was that necessary to put on here? And then it just goes back to the regular terms and conditions. That audio comes from TikTok user Mackenzie Floyd. What I really want to know is, does she plan on making Kevin's chili? And um, I I just want a full review. And of course, stay tuned to the end of this episode for my 60-second roundup of everything you need to watch, read, and look out for in culture next week. But first, my chat with Amanda Seyfried, right after this break. If you're familiar with Elizabeth Holmes, the disgraced former health tech executive convicted of fraud, the first thing you probably think about is her voice. It's been reported that she intentionally lowered her voice, presumably to be taken seriously considering her age and the rare position she held in Silicon Valley. 
Holmes's story was well documented on the podcast The Dropout and the ABC 2020 special, so it's only natural that they would turn it into a wildly entertaining miniseries. And that's exactly what they've done. Oscar-nominated actress Amanda Seyfried stars and produced The Dropout, premiering March 3rd on Hulu. I'll be honest, I was skeptical at first because Holmes is such a well-known figure, but wow, Seyfried is thrilling as Holmes, losing herself in this role while also bringing to life a person we think we know, but how much do we really know? The world works in certain ways until a new great idea comes along and changes everything. What if you could test your blood in your own home? And what if it wasn't a whole vial, but just a drop? I'm going to drop out to Stanford. This machine is going to change the world. These kids don't overthink. Taking on a character like that probably is like daunting for you, I would imagine. What inspired you to to jump onto something like this? You said like having, you know, the audience has all that information, but I have all that information. Yeah. So it's like who cares what the audience has? <laughs> I'm getting all this information yeah. and I'm just, I'm a mimic. I'm, I'm an actor. I'm not, obviously I'm not her clone. Yeah. I'm never going to be her clone. I'm, I'm portraying in essence and trying to get the physical stuff right and very truthful and um, believable. But uh, you know, the, the trick is always to get the audience to believe that you are her like very soon into the show. Mm-hmm. And then they forget about what she really looks like. But I, uh, oh God, I, it was so, it was so much fun. I mean, it was so much more fun than, than this getting to know Marion Davies because I didn't have that much. I had like barely anything. I didn't have anything of her in her real life, but with Elizabeth, I had 10 hours of depositions. I had the interviews with Maria Schreiber, the, the, the one on stage for the, what it was for, but maybe uh, or Vanity Fair. And then I had the one when kind of after things had come crashing down and she was like, you know, I was devastated, you know, yeah. it's it devastated. <laughs> and it's like, I, I, what do you do with it? it? It feels like, like candy. And it feels like you've, you've just dropped into something that, that if you, if you spend enough time in that hole, mm-hmm. you can't help but come out changed. It yeah. like, it made such an impact. And I, for three months, because I, I did have, I did have three months before I went to LA to do pre-production. I just listened. I, I would just have it sitting there and I'd just be listening to it over and over again. And it was just, it was the kind of homework that I, I wish I had in high school. Like I hated everything I had to do to study, but this mm-hmm. was different. It's like all of a sudden I became this eager college student. Yeah. And, um, and it was really fun not to take away how hard it was, but, and scary it was, mm-hmm. but it was joyful at times and then I got to in the first episode do the deposition stuff and stuff that I've been like this is what I've been studying for this whole time like I can actually mimic this scene and I never I've never gotten that before I've never gotten to do I mean I slightly in Lovelace slightly yeah but it was amazing I mean but it's also you know everybody's got she's under the microscope Mm -hmm. she was then you know riveting yeah this this genius this baby genius who came out of the woodwork and could possibly save the world and um and then her fall from grace and and it's 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 troubling at times to remember that it's all real yeah yeah and that's something that i mean one of the things that i think stood out for me of course the first thing that people think about i think now because probably the press is 
the voice is, you know, that voice that and the change in the voice over time, which I think you do perfectly in the show. But also, I think it's like, I mean, I think marginalized people in general can relate to that whole you have to change your demeanor in order to be taken seriously in those settings. You know what I mean? You have to change how you present yourself. When I saw all this stuff with Elizabeth Holmes, I realized like, oh, well, that's why. I get why the voice changed. Like, I get it. But people make such a big deal about it. Was the voice in particular like something that maybe stressed you out about getting this part down? Because it, it seems like there's so much that people talk about the voice. Yeah, it's that's the only thing that you hear about. Um yeah, how did you do her voice? It's just, it was, I, a, a very clear off the bat when I started talking to Michael Showalter and Liz Merriweather, I, it, we talked about it and it's just, it's going to have to be one of those things where we can't worry so much about it. You know, it's, we have to get it deep. I can't sound like me. Yeah. I'm not going to sound like me. Um, her affect or whatever her, her accent, you know, the roundedness of her, I, I can't really describe it, but, but, but her mouth is shaped differently and yeah. she speaks from a different place in her mouth, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. and it, maybe that's an accent or a regional accent, maybe, or, or maybe that's an affect, whatever it is, there's no judgment. I'm going to try to mimic it. Yeah. And then when it comes to the depth, cause there were two parts to her, her voice, we're, we're just going to go try different, you know, modulate it, just, just try, try different levels. And I worked with my voice, my singing coach with it just to make sure I like, cause I have a pretty high voice. Yeah. My, mine is a slightly above average. We talked to a, like a body language expert and Elizabeth's is at like one, not decibel. I don't remember what the measurement of it was, but uh, hers was like at 190 or 180 something. Um, and mine was like two, 30 or, you know, yeah. it's just like an average female voice, you know, yeah. rests at this level and um, I'm a little bit up and she's much further down. And, and, and we, and it's like, we ju- collectively judged her for bringing her voice down as if she's lying to us, mm-hmm. but there's nothing, you're not being untruthful because you're deepening your voice yeah. and you're speaking down here or however low, you know, but it's obviously feels like it's very hard for her, Mm -hmm. but maybe it's not, it it seems painful at times and it seems ridiculous at times. And that's like, it sounds like a judgmental way of putting it, but she needed to do what she needed to do. Look where she got. Yeah. Look who she got behind her. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just the fact that she was charismatic and a genius and, and ambitious and, 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 just incredible to behold. Yeah. It was that she had, she had to, you know, present herself in a, in a specific way. Mm-hmm. It's not that she thought she did. She, she kind of did. Yeah. And how many people have to do that just like her? You know, how many people have to play that role in right. not as intense settings, obviously, but like, and you don't fault them for that. Exactly. You know, in order to be, to get ahead as a woman, yeah. you do have to, you, people have had to make a lot of sacrifices yeah. and, and so the and in terms of the voice, it's like no one's ever going to stop talking about the voice. And yeah. God knows what people, critics or whatever cares, like what they're going to say about my my take on the voice, yeah. my version of the voice. But I did what I needed to do to make it work for me, to make mm-hmm. it feel real. And I had a lot of really smart, creative people around me to help us you know, find whatever it is we needed to find in order to tell the story. And it really, it really was natural. I mean, I, I, the way it flowed into her discovering that voice as the panic 
of the moment. I mean, it was really an organic process. I was surprised and I pleasantly surprised. Good, good. That um, you, are you talking about in the yeah in the when in the when she was in not the hotel but she was Don. with the juice thing and she was having the mayor moment and she was having and, and the Don moment and like all those little moments where the voice was sort of being practiced. I feel mm-hmm. like I do that on like the phone sometimes where I'm having of course to, you know like where you practice those little moments of I'm going to be taken seriously here. Of course, I don't use that voice if I want to be taken seriously, but you know what I mean. Like you yeah, you do that absolutely. We have. What the one thing that was really important for this show, of course, because what's the point of making it mm-hmm. is, is to find her in her moments alone. Yeah. Nobody knows what she does alone. I would love to know what she does when she's brushing her teeth. And you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. wouldn't we all about anybody who's fascinating to us? Mm-hmm. And, and, and we did, that's, that's, that was the most important thing for me about yeah. this, this portrayal and this story is like, what, what might have been going on for mm-hmm. her? And, and so they're beautifully written and um, they feel they they did feel very organic. And I'm sorry, but like we've all been there. Yeah. I mean, I was I, was, um, I feed the, the big animals in the morning usually. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm out doing the hay with the, you know, you bring the gator out to the back and you put the hay on both sides of the paddocks. And like there's like big animals over here and meeting yeah. like donkeys and horses and stuff. And I set my phone up right against one of the hay bales while I'm like, you know, put the, putting the hay back. And I would f- just even for like 10 minutes, just stand there. Cause I had my coffee and the yeah. gator and my dog and whatever. And so I just, I have some time there and I would just t- practice every day. And then I would send Michael Showalter videos of me mm-hmm. trying to sell hay as her. And I'd oh. be trying to like, as if, she, as if I'm in a Ted talk and I'm trying to explain to you why this bale of hay is better than that bale of hay. And like, yeah, because I was trying so desperately. And I don't know if I did to understand the modulation and understand which words and how rehearsed certain things were to make m- the m- most impact. Cause I've never uh-huh. been a speaker. I don't know how to sell things. I'm not a businesswoman, but she is. And like, the more I did that, the more I understood, like this was like life and death for her. Yeah. And and, and then I had a journey myself through those three months, like doing what I'm doing and making it kind of pull it, fuse it into my life a little bit as a, much as yeah. a joke trying to sell hay. But it's like, <laughs> I'm sure he trying, bought that hay. Uh, Michael never bought any hay. <laughs> I will say I about, didn't need it <laughs> about Michael and about the, I was, I was taken by the sensory things. Cause I feel like, I mean, you and I are the same age and I, and I, the time period of Elizabeth Holmes and this whole story, she's also around our age, I think. And yes, she's a year older. Yeah, yeah. And the the sensory things within the timeline of this story was so jarring for me because it was the music I was listening to, the bad yes. dancing, no offense, but Elizabeth Holmes, it seemed, even in that one 2020 thing I saw, she wasn't a great dancer, which is very, I relate to that. And the dancing <laughs> In the film, there are so many like sensory things that pull you into the story, but are also kind of funny sometimes, like oh. awkwardly mm-hmm. funny sometimes, which I think is probably Michael Showalter's doing. But the you know one of, he he was one of three directors on the project, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. It, this was Liz Mary. I mean, I'm yeah. going to give him credit Please. for making for like. I mean, his direction was incredible. Yeah, but like the weird, awkward, very realistic, but also tragically funny things. Yeah. I mean the things, the 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 actual narration in there, the yeah. um, 
direction in the scripts mm. that were very specific. Yeah. I mean, I did, I'm going to give myself credit for some edging on some of it, mm-hmm. but it was really just like her brain. I mean, sh- her brain works like that. Yeah. And this is the music she listened to too. And this is like the, what, what she, some of the things she did, like she and Elizabeth Holmes, our version of Elizabeth, Elizabeth Holmes. Mm. They're <laughs> very similar. <laughs> I mean, like she was the best, I honestly, she was the best person to create this world. (laughs) And we all know someone like that. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, it's me too. It's in me. I have in my room dancing, like, God, no, like no one should see that. (laughs) No one should be privy to what happened in that bedroom in that first episode. Like it's so uncomfortable, but it is absolutely relatable and tragic and hilarious Mm -hmm. and liz and michael are really good at doing that i mean you've seen you've seen their her stuff and his i mean you know that they're like they're geniuses at that yes yeah yes they make the uncomfortable very relatable which very relatable and funny yeah um you know it's not again like no judgment but it doesn't take away from the seriousness of the story either which i think is what's the is so genius about this project in particular and that's something that like I, another thing that struck me is I followed this story, I guess, you know, over the, the podcast and the news and stuff. Like, I followed it, and I'm a big sort of news junkie person. Obviously, I work at Newsweek. Of course I am. And I I feel like I'm a smart person, and I never really understood what was happening with the story. You know what I mean? Like, I never really got what was going on. I was like, what What did she do that was bad again? I'm confused. And Honestly, I didn't know either. Yeah. yeah. Scripts, <laughs> but the show really helps me understand. So <laughs> you know, like I, I feel like I get it now. Which did you get that too? Like, did you feel yeah. like this really laid it out in a really clean it's way? Like layman's terms. Yeah, it's, it, it, we didn't get that from anything. Yeah, we. I mean, a little bit from the Dropout podcast. I for sure understand so much of what happened in the trial because of the Dropout podcast, uh-huh. the trial series, or season two, and. I, I think um, when I was reading the scripts, I'm like, I'm still unsure. Like by the time I got to episode six, I'm like, I'm still unsure of what exactly she's going down for. <laughs> and um, and that's good because I'm playing her still, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but I also wish I had a little bit more understanding and, and, I, it, and I would ask some, what I consider stupid questions. I mean, there are no stupid questions. Yeah. So I'm going to teach my kids, but, <laughs> but it, it, it did feel, you know, it felt like I was still a little bit um, at sea when I was reading this, the scripts for the first time. Yeah. Um, but, I, but you know, you talk to enough people by the time you're on set, you're like, oh, she shouldn't have done that. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. You're like, well, what's the harm? No, I'm yeah. kidding. No, but totally. But you do have I'm, that. Because there yeah, is I'm that. Empathetic. There is that, that, that sort of like, I mean, I guess it's kind of like a new, it's not new, but the whole like fake it till you make it kind of thing and that. That sort of Silicon Valley, like, you know, you just have to be showing how great you are all the time and that stress to be like that. And the fact that she idolized, you know, Steve Jobs and like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, and she would quote these people and it you really felt it. So on some level, like that helped me understand what she did, I guess. Yeah, she was you'd be hard pressed to get her out of her zone. I mean, she was very passionate and very ambitious and very like, it was not all for nothing. She truly believed she was going to get there. I believe that. And, and then she couldn't get out of the, of the, the, um, I can only think of like 
uh, a toboggan shoot, you know, yeah. but um, yeah. it's just, I don't yeah. know why, yeah. but she couldn't get out of it. She was going too fast and she could have gotten out of it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But, but you know, it's, 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 that's why I think the trial, it took a while. I don't know. I, I, I just think it's, it's, it's a gray area. It's nuanced in a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways it's, it's very black and white. And um, and I think everybody's going to have um, differing opinions by the time that they're finished with the show. And the whole point is to to show the the spectrum and yeah. to show, you know, things that happened that, you know, weren't um, discussed at, at length in, 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 in all the like the projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you kind of want to get to know her and, and have some compassion yeah. for, for where she came from and, you know just, I don't know, dig in a little deeper on, on her, because yeah. when I was, I, I did all that stuff too. I watched the inventor and I, mm-hmm. you know, listened to the podcast and I saw the 2020 episodes and, and the interviews before I even knew about this project. And I thought like, okay, I have an idea about this person. She's fascinating. Yeah. Okay, cool. You know? Yeah. And now I'm like, and then this project came along. It's like, let's, let's get to, let's get to the why let's get to the how and, um, and open things up yeah. for discussion. Well, I have one last question for you and then I'll let you go. It's I, so the musical theater nerds out there, I have to ask this for them. Um, so you are obviously associated with some great musicals and it's coming up on the 10 year anniversary of Les Mis, which is like very exciting. And I think a lot of people want to see you in another musical ASAP. <laughs> you, I do too. I really thought that that was, I I, uh, I really thought that that's what I was going to be doing this year. Um, oh, really? Sadly, sadly, yeah. I actually, what I'm doing is, um, I think I, my next job seems like it's like a dream come true. But I, I yeah, you know, yeah, I, I will sing until I'm dead. I take voice lessons twice a week with my same voice coach yeah. since lame is. And um, I'll get there. I have been, I, you know, there are always things that come up and you kind of work with them a yeah. little bit. And then they don't happen. And then they, you know, someone producer or director is like, Hey, what about, remember that? And you think, Oh yeah, but, uh, uh, I will. I will. That's exciting. Mama Mia three. Mama Mia three. Oh, you should do, what would be like a musical that you would like a musical character that you're obsessed with that you would love to do? Um, I always wanted to sing Ava Cassidy songs because her life was just so short. And I mean, they, I know someone was writing a script about it and I, I don't know what happened to it, but it was an, another one of those projects. Yeah. Like ah, it should be, you know, nobody really knows enough about her. And then she died tragically. And it was like, yeah, she had the most beautiful voice and she did the most beautiful covers and she had the most beautiful songs. And it's, um, I, I don't know. I, I, I would, I would want to play like a, I don't, I don't know. I would want to play a, you know, folk singer. I would, yeah. Patty Griffin ever ever oh, did a yeah. movie about her. I don't know if you know. There's little biopics happening all the time. Patty yeah. Patty Griffin's my yeah, yes. my best. Her voice is my best friend, and um, she knows that. And I, I, you know, every time I she's around, I go see her concerts. But um, I would love to sing Patty Griffin, you know. Yeah. But I would also like. I love singing. Yeah, I can't wait for more um, of it. Everyone, I really, I, I really, yeah, yeah. Well, there's thank- always musicals. There's yes. always musicals, even though nobody goes to see them. I do. There's always musicals. Yes, exactly. I, I will go in a hazmat suit. 
during COVID just to see a musical in a theater. Oh, wait, I, I know. Yeah. I know what I just considered the other day. I was watching Encanto. Oh. It's the most beautiful thing. And I think Lin-Manuel, if I, and Tick, Tick, Boom, like I just, yes. I think Lin-Manuel is the greatest gift to musical theater, to music mm-hmm. everywhere, to children yes. of our generation. Mm-hmm. I think children, hopefully, if they, if he continues making things for them, for all of us, really. Yeah. And these are, this generation of children are going to be so much more emotionally intelligent mm-hmm. than anybody. And yeah. every time I see, still I watch Moana and oh. I know a girl of the like, I can't. I, I, I cry. And like, yes. my daughter's always like, why are you crying? And then the grandmother at the end, she's like, not some gift, just oh. you. It's like <sighs> tears, just, just endless buckets of tears. The kids don't cry. It's us who cry. Yeah. Yeah, because we have the life experience where we know that, you know, things no. are short and like, ugh, it's just too much. And because we also know how special this is. Yes. Like, I don't cry at the end of Little Mermaid. No. I love Little Mermaid, but I don't cry. I don't yet. cry. No, but these, these, these are things you cry at. Yeah, just, I can't. In Kanto, there was one onward, which is not one that I would <sighs> normally cry. It wasn't even a musical, but I was bawling at the end I- of it. I was bawling. And, and Coco, of course. I mean, that one, I can't. I can't. Oh, my God. Wait, wait. Did you see Abominable? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I mean, but it's because of that fucking yes. instrument that I'm like, oh, yeah. my God. It's too much. And it's the slow, like, sort of, like, creep in on you that gets you and then it hits you. I can't. The music. It's just too. I'm not even a music person. I mean, I am a musical person, but I'm, I'm not like a music your, person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't. People ask me, like, oh, what's your favorite band or whatever? And I'm like, I don't know. Disney? I Like, what? I don't know. <laughs> Alan Menken. Yeah. Lin-Manuel. Yeah. I mean, they are the... They are the best. They're the best. I mean, sorry, Alan, but like, Lin-Manuel's here. You guys got to work together. Do something. Do something. Alan and and Lin, just together. Um, Jump on a Sorry, I had to go into that. Well... it's taking over my life right now. Not some gift, just. <laughs> There's so much. I can't. I could. We could do this all day. I can't I thank know. you enough for taking the time to do. Thank you so so much. Hello, my name is H. Allen Scott, and I am an American obsessed with the British family. I'm glad I got that off my chest. I can't help it, and I know I'm not alone. I'm not sure exactly what it is about the royal family. I mean, I'm certainly not a proponent of a monarchy in the United States besides, like, maybe Burger King, but I can't deny that I am, in fact, a royal freak, which is why I was so eager to chat with Jack Royston and Kristen Meinzer from Newsweek's The Royal Report, a fantastic podcast that will literally tell you everything you need to know about the royal family. Both of you, I love The Royal Report. I love Jack Royston. Kristen Meinzer, thank you for being here. I am obsessed with the Royals, and I love that it's a part of the Newsweek brand of podcast. And I was so excited to be able to talk to you guys about the Royal family because it's something I'm obsessed with. Yay. Oh, my gosh. We're so excited to be here. (laughs) That's what we want to know. I Well, I want to know. I want to know so many things, but I want to start with the breaking news. The thing that we were talking about before we started recording that, like, is the thing that sent my week into a tizzy. I already had a big week. I was busy doing other things. Then all of a sudden on on Twitter, it was trending that it was reported that the queen had died, but it was a false report from Jason Lee of, what was it, Jack? Hollywood? 
Hollywood Unlocked. Yeah, of all the places to get a tip that the monarch <laughs> uh, had died, we were led to believe it was going to be Hollywood Unlocked, which, uh, I mean, obviously it's just completely spurious. I think the most striking thing that they said that just made it instantly untrue was that the Queen had been due to attend, attend Edward Enenfall's wedding. So if you don't know who he is, he's the editor of British Vogue magazine. Yeah. So he is legit a big figure. Um, it's, a, it's a massive A-list wedding. It's not that it isn't a big wedding. It's just that the Queen doesn't go to celebrity weddings. So this is just not a thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she didn't go to her own son's uh, wedding, legal wedding. She didn't go to Prince Charles's legal wedding to Camilla because it wasn't in a church, you know, like she only goes to religious weddings. I didn't know that. Uh, That's wild. She didn't even attend yeah. like, wow. This is the thing about the royal family is there are bombshells all the way back through the history that people just forget about. And then you dig one of them up and then you're newly blown away by it. So um, yeah, Prince Charles was marrying Camilla, but under Church of England rules, it was it previously was that a divorcee with a living former spouse could not get married and it could not have a church wedding. And they actually changed the rules shortly before Charles and Camilla married. But it, they changed it so that it was down to the discretion of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the Archbishop of Canterbury said no. So they had to marry wow. at Windsor Guildhall. And the Queen has a personal policy that she only goes to church weddings. So she, she couldn't go. She went to a blessing later in the day. So then this, we're led to believe that this same monarch, while suffering with COVID, was supposed to be a guest at Edward Enenfall's <laughs> wedding on an estate in, in Wiltshire. Well, I have to say, I support, I support Queen Elizabeth not attending weddings because I also hate attending weddings. So I, I'm with her in that. I just don't like but, weddings. It's just. A, but what I'll, about the dance party? Afterwards? Dance party's fine, but that's the not the party. wedding. That's different. I'll go to the party, the actual wedding. <laughs> do, it, do it together. Have some love together. I don't need that. But Kristen, I wanted to ask you, like, because this started trending and what I, I feel like it sort of is a message of we know she's older. We know she's up there. Her having COVID right now is a big, stressful thing. I mean, her death, it's not like it's pending, but it is a it is a prospect of we are entering a new era of the royal family with the prospect of King Charles coming, you know, very soon. And I, I wanted to know, like, what you think about it trending? And do you think people are ready for this sort of handoff of the royal family? Mm. Well, I've seen similar rumors trend before over the years. Uh, earlier in COVID, there was a whole theory that it was just a weekend at Bernie situation in the castle, <laughs> where everybody was kind of pretending the queen was alive. And where is the queen really? Has she actually died? So I feel like in the last few years, I've seen this rumor circulate a few times, not as big as you know this week's yeah. rumor has been. Um, so I think we've all seen it before, partly because you know she is really getting up there in age. But let's not forget, she is double vaxxed. She is boosted. She has the greatest medical care in the entire world. She is getting every kind of, you know, state-of-the-art treatment that is out there. And she comes from a family where, at least, you know, on the women's line of the family, yeah. people live a long time. Her mom, if she's going to be like her mom, she's got another eight to ten years left in her before she leaves wow. us. So yeah. um, let's remember that. But to get to the other point you were bringing up, are people ready for this next era for the royal family. Uh, are they ready for King Charles? And I honestly don't think that the world is ready. Uh, the queen is an institution. She's an icon. Even people who don't really like the monarchy still kind of accept and respect the queen. I just don't think Charles has that acceptance or that respect. And public polls show that he still just isn't that popular. He's never been very popular. 
And, uh, you know, we all know the low points in his popularity during the Diana years, but he's never 100% recovered from that. What do you think, Jack? I mean, are we are we ready for King Charles? It just even sounds weird in saying King Charles. It feels almost like 1500s-esque, sort of like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like it doesn't, it doesn't seem right to me. I don't know. Well, I think that's a period of royal history that King Charles III is not going to want to revisit, but because I don't think it worked out very well for the previous <laughs> child. But I think basically he needs to work really hard on trying to form a proper deep connection with the public, which is what the Queen has had for decades upon decades upon decades. And part of the way that she's forged that relationship is through sacrifice. And through, she's really good at creating these kind of big symbolic moments. And so, you know, but the a perfect example would be when she sat alone at Prince Philip's funeral and everybody witnessed her going through what so many people across Britain had had to go through themselves, burying their loved ones due to COVID. Um, <clears throat> Prince Charles doesn't quite have that instinct and he doesn't quite have that knack. And it, you, you don't really get these moments where Charles really connects with the British public. So he's got a really big challenge ahead of him. And at the moment, what we're seeing is him working on some of his kind of pet projects, like, for example, Queen Camilla, you know, so we've uh, just had the announcement earlier this month that when Charles becomes king, his wife, Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, instead of being princess consort, as the palace said all along, she will now be Queen Camilla, which is what Charles has always wanted. Yeah, it's Queen Camilla does not have a ring to it that I necessarily enjoy. And not that that matters, (laughs) you know, not that, that the way it sounds matters, but it does, there is sort of, it also brings about, I think, unnecessarily brings about memories of Diana and I think the public's relationship with Diana. And it does, even though she's not a part of this decision, I think to, to the public, there definitely is this sort of like, you're pulling at the heartstrings here by calling her queen. What do you, what do you think, Kristen? Oh, absolutely. I think it would show uh, that she was humble and grateful if she just was, you know, princess consort. You know, let's not forget that Philip was prince consort. There's nothing wrong with being a prince or a princess. I mean, just a few dozen people on the entire planet can call themselves princess or prince. So Mm. it's not a bad thing to be princess consort. And I think that that would have made her look a little bit more humble and a little bit more lovable in the public's eyes. And uh, yeah, the public has never fully recovered from the Diana years. I don't know if anybody who was alive then will ever fully recover from that. And then the sense that Camilla is replacing her with that yeah. title, it sort of feels like she is. Yeah. I remember being, when when Diana died, I, I remember distinctly, I was watching Saturday Night Live. When I was a kid. I was a little kid. I was watching Saturday Night Live. And I, because it was a breaking news thing, I thought it was a skit. And I'll, I'll always, every time I see Saturday Night Live, every time I, I will, I'll think of that moment. It's sort of like a, it's something, a thing that we'll never forget. And this whole Queen Camilla thing, I think, brings a lot of that up. I do want to pivot because this is a pop culture podcast. And I do, I need to ask <laughs> about how, as an American, how I process the royal family, which is through television and film and entertainment. Because to me, the Queen is right next to Kim Kardashian in importance. I mean, they are the same <laughs> figure in that, like, they're just pop culture icons in a way. And I've always been obsessed with Queen Elizabeth and the royal family because of that. And over the last, like, 15 years, more so than in the, you know, half part of the 20th century, actors have been winning award after award, Oscars, Emmys for playing this current members of this current royal family, either past or present members of this current royal family. And I, I, it does seem like there's more and more projects and more things coming out about the royal family. How, 
do you think the royal family themselves feel about some of these? I mean, Kristen Stewart potentially could win the Best Actress Oscar for playing Princess Diana. So it's like, it's still happening. How do you think the royal family feels about these projects? I think there are some they like more than others. I mean, Harry said he kind of, he's not against the crown and he actually prefers that to the tabloid press. Um, but I think, that, you know, they see it in really stark terms, which is that if it's good for them, they like it. If it's not, then they don't. I mean, the makers of the crown actually hinted that they have, you know, they've had conversations with people from the palace about the, you know, the different series. Um, but it seems like those conversations haven't been quite as upbeat and positive since um, season four, where we had Princess Diana's story. Um, and there was a lot of briefing to the British press um, from anonymous sources, basically saying how terrible it was. But prior to that season, they were getting, it seems like, you know, decent feedback. I love all the leaked stories from inside the palace that, oh, they're Charles exciting, like right? people to know that he was not sleeping with Camilla the entire marriage, just half of the marriage. And these kinds of corrections, I'm just like, you're just making it worse. Yeah. You're just making it worse. Stop it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, what do you think? I mean, you're 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 an American, Kristen. You come from you live here in the U.S. Like what what do you think it is? What's our obsession with watching like Kristen Stewart sort of uh, um, reimagine Princess Diana running through a field? Because I don't think Princess <laughs> Diana ever really did that. But I want to believe she did. <laughs> I think that Americans have always had an obsession with our great grandparents who are the British royals. Let's not forget that the first fully established colonies in the US were British. Uh, their king was our king. For over a century, for about a century and a half, they were ours as well. We were their subjects. And on top of that, uh, sadly, I mean, other than the Native Americans, none of us are actually from the U.S. But, you know, even the slave trade, unfortunately, the British royals were instrumental in the transatlantic slave trade. So, so many of us directly or indirectly are, you know, related to the British in some ways, if only through our language, because our government, our education systems, business, and so on are conducted for the most part in English in the U.S. But beyond those historical reasons, I think we also just love the fantasy of it all. We love the Disney princess fantasy. We love the titles. We love the castles. And even in the Gilded Age in the U.S., uh, socialites who were not considered classy, even though they were billionaires, mm -hmm. the only way they could really become classy, a lot of them in the you know, uh, robber baron era, was to marry a bankrupt British duke with a castle. And somehow marrying this bankrupt guy who had a title, somehow you were the toast of the town suddenly after that, because we love the fantasy of all those things. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, there is, I mean, I think for years, the only family that sort of ever compared to the royal family in the US was the Kennedys. And that was, and that sort of, you know, died out over the past few years, I mean, literally and figuratively, in that like, the older generation has sort of passed on and it's sort of this, we have the new era of Kennedy's coming about, but they don't have necessarily the grandeur and the connection to the Royal family that the literal past Kennedy's had to the Royal family. I mean, you had the, it was, it's insane that we're so obsessed with sort of this, the, the pageantry of it all. I mean, even me yesterday, when all the stuff was coming out about the queen, this, this false report about the queen, they kept using the picture of her in the green outfit. And I was just like, there, that's the queen, like <laughs> that bright green outfit. It just, it's, I get excited about things like that. And I think now with Harry and Meghan living here in the US, we do kind of have there, it does feel like the royal family has not only gone global in a literal sense, but 
we have our own little bit of the royal family here in the U.S. How do you think them living here is not only changing sort of the future of the royal family and the perception of the royal family, but maybe even making it stronger by being here in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And obviously, you got Prince William and probably Kate coming to America next year for the Earthshot, or this year, in fact, for the Earthshot Prize. Um, I think it makes them it makes them all more relevant to a U.S. audience, and it means that all of these debates are going to yeah they you know it all all rivers start to flow back to California. Um, Harry's got his memoir coming out, and that's going to be a massive story. There's going to be bombshells throughout, I'm sure. Um, he's going to start getting into his childhood, but we're also probably going to find out a bit more about his U.S. life as well. I would imagine he's going to start putting some things in there about the last couple of years out in America. We've got, had him at the Super Bowl. That was fun. Yeah. Um, and it feels like he got the kind of reception that he would want if he was a U.S. celebrity. You know, like it, it felt like it created buzz out in America that he was there. The cameras panned on to him. It's a big thing. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's you know, it could, everything could have been so different had it only been so different. It's you know, it's all kind of um, in, in, you know, imbued with conflict now. But it could have been really great for the royal family to have these kind of ambassadors out in America. It could have helped William raise money for the Earthshot Prize. They seem hesitant of them being here. It's like there's always roadblocks about them sort of being here and trying to even just him going back to the, the UK and visiting his family. It seems like they put up roadblocks for his involvement. Do you think that's the case, Kristen? And like, what do you think about them being here in the US? And what can they do for the royal family in the future? Oh, boy. Well, I think the British royal family is in many ways stuck in the past. Uh, this is the way things have always been done. Uh, we like to think of ourselves not as celebrities, but as, you know, uh, this is a constitutional monarchy. This is an important part of balancing the government. And we're important for showing the values of what it means to be British, what kinds of causes we stand behind. And uh, we're important for uh, setting certain standards of uh, what should be done in certain situations. There's the formality of it all. And I think that what Harry and Meghan have done, so much of it is, quote unquote, not what's traditional, including her race. And uh, including the fact that she's divorced. And uh, and so they're not really keeping themselves fully in the past. I think what they're doing is being what the future of the monarchs should have been more than 20 years ago, you know, yeah. embracing the fact that so much of what people see in them is celebrity. I think that Diana understood that. And look what happened to her as well. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, it, it, it is hard, though, for an institution that's nearly a thousand years old to get with the program because they are very much an institution of the past. Yeah, yeah. No, I think my mom said it best when she said that with Prince Harry, you want to go to lunch with him and like it would actually be probably a good lunch. But with Prince William, it'd be like, well, it'd be an awkward conversation at a dinner party, but I'm sure it'd be fun. <laughs> like, it wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't know, he wouldn't have much to talk about. Whereas Harry, you could probably show your Twitter feed to and it'd be fine. <laughs> good well i wanted to thank you guys so much for doing this and also where when does the royal report come out and where can people find it it comes out every other friday it's available wherever you listen to podcasts everywhere from you know stitcher and spotify and apple to you know um even just online if you're looking up google podcasts so again it's called the royal report it's from newsweek and uh everyone should check out your show too they oh, already are they're listening i am. Let's <laughs> hope they are <laughs> well thank you both so much for being here no Thank problem. you for having us.
And now, your roundup of everything you need to watch, read, and look out for in pop culture next week in under 60 seconds. There's a lot going on, so prepare to be entertained. Start the clock. At the movies, there's The Desperate Hour, starring Naomi Watts, Gasoline Alley, starring Bruce Willis, and Tyler Perry is back with A Medea's Homecoming on Netflix. The band Tears for Fears is back with The Tipping Point, their first studio album in 17 years. Bob Odenkirk is coming out with his memoir, Comedy, 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 Drama. On TV, Sunday's a big night. Killing Eve returns to BBC America. On Showtime, Joseph Gordon-Levitt stars in Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. And American Idol returns to ABC. There's also two big finales on Sunday, Euphoria on HBO and 1883 on Paramount+. Then later this week, Star Trek Picard on Paramount Plus comes out, and Joe vs. Carol comes to Peacock, which is based on the two central figures from the Netflix documentary series, Tiger King. What did I miss? Let me know what you're watching this week. You can find me at H. Allen Scott on everything. And thanks for listening to the Parting Shot Podcast. For more on the latest news and podcasts, head to Newsweek.com and follow Newsweek on all social platforms. If you like the podcast, do me a favor and leave a little rating or review. It really helps. I'll be back next week with two-time Academy Award-winning actress Renee Zellweger to talk about The Thing About Pam, her new miniseries coming to NBC. It's based on a shocking true story about alleged serial killer Pam Hupp. That's going to be a conversation you do not want to miss. I'll also be chatting with Danny Pellegrino from the Everything Iconic podcast about his new book, How Do I Unremember This? Unfortunately True Stories. Stay tuned for all of that and more next week on the Parting Shot Podcast. Until then, grab a snack, watch something fun, and have a great week. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.